Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. The first one is called your aspiration. You need to have some higher aspiration. In other words, why am I doing this? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Robert Bine, the purpose of life is a life of purpose. My guest today, Marshall Goldsmith, has helped so many people live a purposeful life. He's been recognized by Thinkers 50 as the world's number one leadership thinker and number one executive coach. He's also a globally renowned keynote speaker and the New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Triggers, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and a brand new one, The Earned Life, which will be available by the time you hear this episode. Marshall, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Elevate Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. So you've obviously become uh, one of the world's greatest leadership experts, uh, but I'd love to start with the early years. Um, did you have a passion for for leadership as a young age, or was that something you sort of got into later on? Oh, no, my undergraduate degree is in mathematical economics. I got an MBA at Indiana University where I got more interested in the people side of things. Then I had the opportunity to get a fellowship to go to UCLA and avoid reality five years or get a job offer in IBM. So I went to UCLA, I got a PhD in organizational behavior, really relatively random, but became very interested in the topic when I was getting my PhD. So that's how I got interested in that. And then leadership development really was somewhat accidental. I, I met a very famous man named Dr. Paul Hersey. He and Ken Blanchard invented situational leadership, and he was a great, great teacher, probably the highest paid person in our field at the time. So I followed him around. I, I literally carried the bags, served the coffee, sat in the back of the room, you know, and just did whatever I could do because he let me go to his classes. And then one day he became double booked. He said, can you do what I do? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll pay a thousand bucks for a day. I was making 15,000 bucks for a year. I was 28 years old. That was a long time ago, 45 years ago. You know, you know what I said? Sign me up. I did a program for Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in New York City. They were very angry when I showed up. I got ranked <laughs> first place of all the speakers. They loved me. They said, send him back. And here I am. <laughs> so what was your first technical real job then? Well, that was probably. That was your first. Okay. Well, other than be a college professor, which you may or may not define as a technical real job. No, that counts as teacher counts as a real job. Yeah, so I was I was a college professor. Yeah. All right. So they didn't know that you were coming. Uh, you spoke at this thing, highest rated speaker, and then uh, was that sort of for you? All right, this is this is what I want to do. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I number one greatly enjoyed it, and number two, get paid a lot. And uh, the clients were, you know, I mean, I was flying first class. Clients are happy. I'm 28 years old. 
I, I was saved by two things. One, I was bald, which made me look older than I was. And I was too stupid to realize how important the people were. So I was basically saved by both baldness and stupidity. And so what, what is it that you were focused on when you were traveling around talking to all those? Was, was it, were you facilitating sessions or was it a oh, specific no. speech you were giving? No, I was situational leadership. I was yeah. just, I was a substitute for Paul. Got it. And what exactly was he, he was teaching his program or he was walking into real life situations and working? Oh, no, he, he was a teacher. Got it. Okay. Paul's a great teacher. Great teacher. Put on a great show. Great teacher. Very entertaining. Very artistic. Uh, fascinating guy. All right. So now at this point, you've, you've written, I think, or edited over 30 books in, in your career. When did you get started as a writer? Well, the first real book I did was with friends of Hesselbein and Peter Drucker was called The Leader of the Future, which, you know, it was an edited book, hugely successful, sold about half a million copies. And it was probably the most popular edited book on leadership or you know, maybe even in business ever written. And, and so and then I know one of your most famous books, and, and probably because I think it's still one of the best titled, uh, was What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Um, and I think this is probably one of the main issues that high growth, you know, companies run into, uh, particularly around a people aspect. What, 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 was there a specific instance or an insight or sort of what led you into that, into that sort of subject area? Well, that book was also very, very fortuitous. A lot of lucky breaks. It sold about a million and a half copies. And, you know, we had $150,000 royalty from that book last year. 15 years after it came out. Wow. That book is unbelievably, and the quote is quoted all the time. I mean, almost every day somebody says, what got you here won't get you there. Cause I get, when they quote it, I see the- Do you get royalties on that when they quote you? No, no, no I wish <laughs> I did. That would be nice. So, like so the music happened, industry, anytime it plays, you know, you got to cut. Well, what happened is Peter Drucker kind of inspired the book because I was on his advisory board for 10 years of the Drucker Foundation. And he said, we spent a lot of time teaching leaders what to do. We don't spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to stop. The other inspiration was Alan Mulally, who was at Boeing at the time. He told me, your whole job is just work with great people. If you work with great people, you win. You work with the wrong people, you lose. I kind of put those two together and really focused on helping great people be even better and some of the unique challenges that great people have. Coaching was all, always fix the loser, not help the winner. And my big claim to fame is I turned coaching away from help the loser into fix the winner help the winner. So my clients are big winners of life and I'm helping great people get even better. So if you do a Google search, helping successful leaders in quotes, first 500 hits, 450 are me. So that's my brand. So, but diving into that a little more, when companies are struck, is it the processes that won't get them there? Is it the way that they were thinking? Or sometimes is it the people, is it ever the people? Like, can the people always improve? Or sometimes do you need, is there a person who really is good from zero to 10? And then you need a 10 to 50 or a 50 to a hundred? Well, you, you, you gave me about three or four questions. At yeah. one. You can answer them in whatever order you'd like. Number one, <laughs> I'm not an expert on the processes or yeah. the organization. So the answer to the first two is I couldn't help if that were the problem. So my whole area of expertise is helping helping successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in behavior. So that's all I know about. And what happens there is successful people, not just leaders, humans, animals fall into a trap. Any human or even any animal will replicate behavior that's followed by positive reinforcement. No one gets more positive reinforcement than a corporate CEO, right? 
So what happens is, here's the trap. I behave this way. I am successful. Therefore, I must be successful because I behave this way. (laughs) Wrong. You are successful. You behave this way. You're successful because you do many things right or you wouldn't be in that job. And in spite of doing some things that are idiotic. I've never met anyone who's so wonderful. They had nothing on the in spite of list. That's number one. And number two, what you did that led to success yesterday is not necessarily a guarantee of what you're going to need to do to lead success tomorrow. So just replicating the same thing you've been doing because it worked in the past is not always a formula for success. So that's kind of the thoughts that led to the book. Diving into that, how how do people know what the inflection points are? Do they tend to come at certain organizational sizes or revenue or where, where did you see sort of repeated cycles again? Cause a lot of times it's, Oh, if it's do what works and then, but it sounds like, how, how do you know when that, then you get into an area where you need to, you know, n- maybe reevaluate. Well, I, I get asked to work with people for a couple of reasons. One, the board calls me in to work with the CEO Two, the CEO calls me in to work with a future CEO Or three, the CEO wants other people to get better. And I always say, look, you want them to get better, you go first. Let them watch you try to get better. Don't don't lead by talk. So the other place I work a lot is when CEOs want their culture to change, I say, let's start with you. Let's start with you. Let them watch you change. By the way, you want everybody else to get better? Let them watch you try to get better. Let them watch you stand up. You get feedback. You apologize for your mistakes. You step up to the plate. And then then maybe you can ask other people to do the same thing. Always it seemed like a tall task to me. Like, I, I, how many of the places that want to change cultures really, they need to change leaders or can the leaders change? I, I've always felt like if the people have been running the culture and it's been a terrible culture for 10 years, the, the, the probability of just, you know, turning that 180 seems like a, a, a tall task. Oh, can that happen? Definitely. Can. Let's take two case studies. Yeah. Life coach, Alan Mulally at Ford, he did a, not a good job, a spectacular job of changing that company. And Hubert Jolie at Best Buy. But that was new leadership, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying with existing, when you were saying like, how often does a leader, who an existing leader who dramatically needs to change the culture, uh, able to do that themselves, or in your case, oh, where they think that other people are the problem? Look, anybody can change. Yeah. I mean, this people can't change is nonsense. Anybody can change. I mean, I didn't get paid if they didn't get better. If people couldn't change, I'd never get paid. Anybody can change behavior. The only people that cannot change behavior have an incurable genetic defect. Assuming you do not have an incurable genetic defect, by definition, you can change. Whether you want to change is a different That's the key. <laughs> yeah. Now, you have to realize, I do not work with everybody. Yeah. I only work with people that care. People ask me, how do I motivate people that don't care? And the answer is, I don't. I don't work with anybody that doesn't care. Why? I don't get paid if they don't get better. I'm not going to waste my time. I've learned a hard lesson. My name is Marshall Goldsmith, not Jesus Christ. I'm not in the savior business. Yeah. If they don't care, I don't care. I, I've heard you speak about this multiple times. It's interesting. You're not. You're not into. And and Kim Harold, who, who's got coach I work with, same thing. You're not. You're not into reclamation projects, right? These are good people who want to do the work, who want to get better. You know, not and not interested in bringing along the unwilling. No, you're exactly right. Now, I'm not saying somebody else shouldn't do that. Right. I don't do that. That's not my job. Somebody else can do that, but not me. Can you share a situation where you came in and the leader wanted to change the culture and it was very clear that they were the problem and they weren't going to change? Oh, yeah. And uh, when I work with people, I say, if I work with you, you will do. 
you, you will get confidential feedback. You will pick important behavior to improve. You will apologize for mistakes. You will follow people on a regular basis and you will get measured. And if you do not, it's okay. I just won't work with you. <laughs> do, do they say they're going to do it and then they don't? Or does that scare them off, you know, right in the beginning? Look, people don't do what I teach. They are going to look like complete fools. Yeah. What what did Alan do so well? He he was a guest uh, a few episodes. What you know that was a complete one eighty culture change, as you said. We'll talk through some of the things that you know working with him that he he was able to do there. That that in terms of turning really turning a company around. Well, I started working with Alan when he was at Boeing, and yeah. you know I outlined my process to Alan. You know what Alan said? Let's see, I do this and this and this and this and this and this. And I showed him my research and this and this and this leads to these results. I said, that's about it. He said, Marshall, I built the Boeing 7777, I built that airplane. It was complicated. He said, I can carry this ball. So I'm working with Alan. It becomes obvious in about three months that he's going to get massively better. It was great to start with. And I said, well, you know, I'm getting paid a lot of money here and not doing any work. Maybe we should perk it up a little bit. He said, why don't we help everybody get better? Then he just turned around and applied what I was teaching to him to everybody. And shockingly, it kept working. Well, it didn't work because I was a good coach. It worked because he's a good client. So what Alan taught me is the secret of success as a coach is you work with great people. I only work with great people who are dedicated, motivated, want to get better, good people. I believe in their integrity. And if they aren't, it's okay. I just don't work with them. So Alan goes to Ford. What's he do? He totally changed the culture. He said, here's the new culture. They agreed on it. Then you know what? You, option A, you behave this way. Option B, you get a coach. Option C, you're fired. And the ones that didn't want to try to get better, guess what? Out. Now, he didn't have to fire that many. Yeah. Well, they opt, some of them opted out too, right? Yeah. That's it. It was their choice. So it, it's not rocket science. If you really know Alan, the stuff he did is not complicated or rocket science. He just did it. In terms of a leader thinking about their team and looking for their people on their team that are coachable or uncoachable, what, what are some things that they should be looking for that they might sort of sense, but haven't made their, their decision yet, whether this person is, is fixable or not? Well, number one, you have to realize I'm not an expert on, for example, technical issues. So yeah. I get a call from a pharmaceutical company that said, we want you to coach Dr. X. I said, what's his problem? They said, he's not updated on recent medical technology. I said, neither am I. (laughs) I can't make a bad doctor a good doctor, a bad scientist a good scientist. Behavioral coaching only solves behavioral problems, number one. I can't turn a bad strategy into a good strategy, number two. Never coach an integrity problem. Only fire integrity problems. Don't coach integrity problems. So when does my process work? One, the issue has to be behavioral. Yeah. Two, they have to be motivated to change. And three, they have to be given a fair chance. By the way, that doesn't always happen. They have to be given a fair chance. Some companies hire people to coach. They hire coaches. It's really seek and destroy. They don't want the person to get better. They want to fire them, but they want to say, I got them a coach. Yeah. It's no good. It takes a lot of courage to do this. What I teach takes a lot of courage. It takes humility. I can't make perfect people get better. And it takes discipline. What's the difference between Alan? He has plenty of courage. Is plenty of humility and there's plenty of discipline. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Can you dive a little bit into your process? I know the cornerstone, one of the things you pioneer is the stakeholder-centered uh, coaching. Right. Can you explain what that is? I, you know, the coaching is, you've been doing this for a long time, but probably in the last couple of field, years, it has proliferated, right? The field. And I think there's all kinds of people who are probably not good coaches or bad doers and then became coaches. You've been doing this a lot longer for anyone else. Can you talk a little bit about your process and sort of what, what the stakeholder-centered approach means? Well, stakeholder-centered coaching is a very straightforward process. Step one is you have to identify who are your key stakeholders. So if, typically for me, I'm coaching the CEO or the future CEO. And the boss or the board either way has to approve it. So first you identify who are this person's key stakeholders. Then the person gets confidential feedback. So you, and my average client has 18 key stakeholders, nothing so magic. The first thing you do is you go all, you go to everyone on their team and ask for what is this person good at and what are they, what are they not good at? Confidential feedback, yeah. Then I write a report. I go over the report with my client. They say, I feel good about X, want to get better Y. Bring in the boss or the board or whoever the authority figure is, and they have to sign off on it. Now they agree. Now I say, look, you get significantly better at this stuff judged by these people. I get paid. Is that about how this works? They say, yes. Then what they have to do is they have to, assuming they have a problem that's behavioral that relates to apology, they have to apologize. They just stand up and they say, here's what I'm proud of. Thank you. I don't know who said what. I got a lot of good feedback. Here's what I want to do better. I'm sorry for my mistakes. Then they don't ask for feedback about the past, ideas for the future. I'm big on feed forward. They yeah. say, Give me ideas for the future about how I could be, for example, a great listener. People give them ideas. They say, thank you. They don't promise to do everything. They promise to listen and do what they can. They gather input from everyone around them. Then they come back and talk to me. I give them input. I help them. 
follow-up, 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 and then we measure improvement and they get better and I get paid. Can you talk about, yeah, your payment model is interesting. So do you do you create metrics around these things? How do you determine whether someone's a better listener or no? Well, it's simple. Here's a better listener. Say, has Joe become a better listener? Minus three, plus three, no change. We, we actually start measuring, not as judged by Joe, as judged by everyone around Joe. Is it ever the case where someone gets better, but they do worse in their job? Oh, that's eminently possible. Yeah. I only deal with one variable. I mean, right. I have in math, so I'm not naive enough to think you're going to change leadership behavior and that changes all variables. One of the worst CEOs I ever met was one of the most successful in terms of the bottom line. I mean, he was awful, but he was in a pharmaceutical company. They came up with a great product, you know, hugely successful, made a zillion dollars. The guy was having sex with a secretary, had very limited integrity, acted like a jerk, and was mega successful in terms of the bottom line. Yeah, right, right place, right time solves a lot of a lot of, of course. Yeah. So I'm not naive. Look, I, I coach a CEO of Texaco. Their profits skyrocket because of the war in the Middle East. Yeah. Oh, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sitting there saying, yeah, right. By the way, when I coach people, you know what I tell them? I want you to do this because you believe it's the right thing to do. If, if it's not good enough because you're doing it because it's the right thing to do, let's don't bother. Yeah. If the only reason you're doing this is to kiss ass or get ahead or, you know, play some game, why should I waste my time? You said earlier, integrity issues are unfixable. What I, I agree with. I did, did not say oh, that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you said, said. I said never coach an integrity issue. Never coach an integrity issue. Fire an integrity issue. That doesn't mean it's not fixable. Got it. I learned that working at IBM. IBM, they have some very clear rules. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you're fired. You bring in five million bucks of profit. You lie, you cheat, you steal for five bucks. You're fired. That's it. It's a great rule. Integrity is not a performance appraisal issue. It's a condition of employment issue. Got it. So you're just saying it doesn't fall under coaching. Got it. Nope. Not my coaching. But doesn't a management team's perception of their leader as being someone who is integral like have a huge impact on how much they're willing to follow that person? Of course. Yeah. The thing is, again, you had to realize I don't work on what I don't work on. Yeah. I'm not saying what I don't work on isn't important. You just don't, you don't measure that. You don't manage it. It's not what you do. I don't know. If you come to me with a brain tumor and I'm a foot doctor, I don't deal with your brain tumor. So who would you send people to for an issue of integrity? I don't. <laughs> you're, you're out. So Back to the what won't get you here. Can you think of an example of your own career where you had to fundamentally change something that worked for you, but then stopped working? Well, I've got one right now. I don't think something stopped working, but I've changed my career a lot. Yeah. I never did life coaching really much at all until the last, let's say, five or 10 years, and especially the last few years. Half the people I coach now are billionaires. So one guy I'm coaching, I said, what do you want me to do? Help you get from $4 billion to $4.1 billion? You know? Yeah. What's the point here? He said, I just want to have a better life. A lot of my coaching now is much more focused on just helping people have a better life. Why? The people I'm coaching just have different needs. And as I've grown older, I just got more interested in the topic. What is the same or what is different about that process? Is it still stakeholder center? Well, I still do that, yet that's not all I do. Because you can become more effective in terms of stakeholder centered feedback and a better leader and still not have a great life. So now I focus on what's important in your life. What do you want to do as a human being? How do you achieve happiness? 
I was curious if you got feedback from the stakeholders in their life, whether it's children, spouses. I often do. Not always. That's up to them. I don't tell them that they have to do that, but that happens quite often. Now I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in the Middle East. We just got home in Dubai. I'm doing a lot of work in the Middle East. And there, a lot of it is family business. I'm curious, what do these people define as a better life? Like, what is the, what is the definition of that? Well, in my new book, The Earned Life, I talk a lot about this. Three things. Okay. Uh, I talk about three factors. The first one is called your aspiration. You need to have some higher aspiration. In other words, why am I doing this? Yeah. The second thing is your level of ambition. That's your achievement. And then the third is your day-to-day action. Now, if you look at most humans in the history of the world, 99% of everything is just on the day-to-day action. People did what they were told. They didn't have a lot of choice in life. You lived where you're supposed to live, work where you're supposed to work, and you were living day-to-day life. Some people are focused on the high-end aspiration, and they kind of live in their heads or kind of really idealistic, but don't do much. Yeah. People I coach achievaholics, uh, their problem is overweighting achievement. And I don't need to teach them to achieve. One thing I'm proud of in my new book, every, by the way, every self-help book talks about how to have more delayed gratification. Not mine. I just talk about sometimes delayed gratification is good, but if all you do is delay gratification, when you die, guess what you get? Delay. Guess what you miss? Gratification. <laughs> Well, well, actually, I want to dive into that more, but we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Marshall. Today's episode is brought to you by Text Expander. What can you do with more hours every month? Repetitive typing, little mistakes, searching for answers. All these things are taking precious time away from you and your team. With Text Expander, you can take time back and focus on what matters most in your business. With Text Expander, you and your team can keep your messages consistent, save time and be more productive and be accurate every time. Make work happen wherever you are by saying more in less time and with less effort using Text Expander. Here's how it works. Drop your commonly used content, a thank you note, or a request for a meeting into a Text Expander snippet and give it an abbreviation. Share your snippet with your entire team. Just type a few characters to trigger your snippet and the content expands anywhere you type. It's that easy. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, iPad, and listeners of this show get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. That's text, E-X-P-A-N-D-E-R.com slash podcast. All right, and we're back with Marshall Goldsmith. We're about to jump into your new book, uh, The Earned Life, and, and you got us started there. But I agree with the context of overambition. What, what is the is there a root of overambition? Is it is does it go to childhood stuff? Like, what is the cause of overambition? I'm I'm very seldom do I spend a lot of time. I'm not a therapist. I yeah. don't really do any childhood stuff, and I really don't get to the root cause. My my goal is to help you change your behavior. Yeah. And so mine is much much simpler than that. So what I would say is to have a great life, you do need to have some overarching purpose. Okay. Yeah. Why am I here? Then you do need to achieve, yet you also need to enjoy the journey of life. The problem with people who are focused on achievement, I'll just spend a few minutes on this. because Please, yeah, this is a really important. There's a lot of people, I think, listening here. Well, it's of all the stuff in the book, this one gets the most traction, I can tell yeah. you. Being focused on results or being, if you value your human being based on results, you value yourself as a human based on results, it's a fool's game. It's a fool's game you cannot win. 
Why? For two reasons. One, you don't control all the results. A lot of the results are due to random factors you can't control. Like you asked me, if I coach somebody, will they become a business success? Maybe. They'd be a better leader, which is you know correlated with business success. But I have a degree in math. I'm not going to make some ridiculous claim they're going to be a successful company just because I'm their coach. Let's say an oil company, it's, it's, you know, there are 10,000 variables in the bottom line. Yeah. On the other hand, you get focused on results. You don't control the results. Number two, though, which is worse, what happens after you achieve the results? Most people just set the next That's mountain, it. right? Yeah. It gives you about what? 10, 10 seconds. Yeah. A little satisfaction for a week, maybe. But after that, you move on. I, one of the guys that endorsed my book is Albert Berla. Albert's a seal Pfizer. So I said, Albert, how's your year last year? He said, hey, pretty good. You know, I came up with this vaccine and you know, saved a billion lives there. I was pretty good. And <laughs> we then can do better. Yeah. Stocks all time high and CEO of the year and wrote a book and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, fantastic. What's your challenge? He said, two words, next year. Next year, if his value as a human being is he has to do better than next year, he can pack it in. He will never do better than next year. Michael Phelps won 25 gold medals. What do you think about doing after he won that last medal? Kill himself. Kill himself. Why? You can't win that game. If your value as a human being is you have to achieve more, you're never going to win. You never get there. And it's a very important point for achievers to realize, you know, what am I doing here? One, what is the higher purpose of all this achievement? Because it's easy to get lost in why am I doing it? You're doing it, but you forget why. Or two, are you even enjoying yourself when you're doing it? Are you enjoying the process of life? And one story I love in the book, you know, the marshmallow research? Uh, Is this the delayed marshmallow one? Yeah. 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 So you take a kid and say, kid, we'll give you a marshmallow. You eat the marshmallow, you get one. But if you wait, oh, two, two. And of course, they have this alleged longitudinal research which shows the kids that eat one marshmallow are all drug addicts, the kids that wait for two, well, kids from Harvard, something along those lines. It seemed a little exaggerated, but whatever. The point is, delayed gratification leads to increased achievement. Here's what they did not do in the research. They didn't take the kid that had two marshmallows and say, kid, wait a little more. Three. Let's wait some more. Four, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand. And where does the story end? An old man sitting without, there without any marshmallows, wait, waiting to die, surrounded by thousands of uneaten marshmallows. I saw a funny story that a guy told yesterday online. Similar, I don't know if there was chocolate, but he said he did the experience with this kid. They decided to take the two gumdrops, you know, whatever it was, the next the next day. Yeah. Uh, so he's like, I was very proud of them, and then I ate them because you know market volatility. <laughs> so that was the third lesson he he wanted to teach. So. I mean, again, just a window into that. It seems like there's some thresholds. So if you're if you're always managing the results or the outcomes or achievement, you'll never get there. You always move the needle. But how do you then know? And maybe you could use yourself as an example. I'd love to hear like what is your sort of defined life's purpose, and then how do you how do you know you're doing well at that or not doing well at that? Well, my purpose is pretty simple: macro, micro. My my purpose at the macro level is to make a positive impact in as many lives as I can and the limited time I have left to do it. That's my yep. macro level purpose. A hundred coaches is about that and books and giving all my material away. And that's my macro purpose. Then the the ambition phase is achievement, writing a book or giving a course or teaching something or doing this podcast, which hopefully helps people. 
And then, you know, then you have the micro level, just have one person who's listening to this have a little better life. And then the three connections are one, I have a higher purpose. Two, I'm achieving things. And three, I enjoy what I'm doing. You wrote, you wrote, you wrote this quote, I uh, pulled this quote from the book. I think it's super relevant to what we're talking about. So we're living an earned life when the choices, risks, and the efforts we make in each moment align with an overarching purpose in our lives, regardless of the eventual outcome. Um, it's an interesting, the significance between separating purpose from outcomes. I'm guessing this is pretty, pretty hard for most people. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, Safi Bacall. I don't know if you've met yeah, Safi. I know Safi. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. Safi's a brilliant guy. His IQ is probably equal to mine and yours combined. So anyway, Safi is a very, very smart guy. As you know, he's a PhD in physics from Stanford. He's started businesses, probably worth tens of millions of dollars, consulted presidents, wrote a best-selling book, blah, blah, blah. So Safi spent 50, uh, I spent with 50 people all COVID every weekend for months, just talking with these people. He was one of the people. Yeah. And Safi said he had a great breakthrough. You know what it was? Safi, who talks like a scientist, he said, I always thought that happiness was a dependent variable based upon achievement. And he said he finally realized that happiness and achievement are independent variables. You can be happy and achieve nothing. You can be happy and achieve a lot. You can be miserable and achieve nothing. You can be miserable, achieve a lot. And he said, I always thought if I achieved more, I would be happy. You know what I told him? How much do you have to achieve? You already got a PhD from Stanford. You published best-selling books. You know, blah, 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 blah. You're already at 99.999 in terms of achievement. You really think getting to a 99.99999 is going to make any difference? You really think it's going to matter at this point in time? You've achieved so much now, it's ridiculous. See, everyone I coach, I don't have to give them motivational speeches to achieve. Right. They're already achievers. But aren't they? They're, I'm trying to understand why, you know, kind of, I think it's interesting why this happened. Is that because people are searching for a measurement stick of their impact? Oh, I, it's not hard to understand why it happens. It's hard to understand why anything else happens. Yeah. <laughs> Let me describe the, the great Western disease as I'll be happy when. When yeah. I get to status BMW. Let me describe the great Western art form. You may have seen this before. You may have seen it once or twice. It sounds like that there is a person. No, the person is sad. Ooh, they spend money. They buy a product and they become happy. This is called a commercial. Have you ever seen one of those before? Yeah. More How many too. thousands of times has that message been hammered in your head? Our entire society is hammers one message into your head. You will be happy when. When you get the money, the status, the BMW, buy the product, it's all going to be okay when it's all out there. I'm a Buddhist. Yeah. You know what the learning point in Buddhism? It's not out there. It's not out there. It's in here. You're not going to find it out there. You can look all you want to. You're not going to find it. You can achieve everything in the world. It's not out there. If you're looking for self-worth, if you're looking for peace and happiness, you're looking for it out there. You're looking in the wrong place. You're not going to find it. Do you see different challenges or opportunities? Do you, I mean, do you see fundamentally different circumstances as you're coaching CEOs from the U.S. versus the Middle East versus Asia, or is this it's similar? I've been to 102 countries. The answer is not much. I'm coaching, I think, nine people now. Only one was born in the U.S. That's interesting. Is that, but are they, are they U.S. CEOs? A lot of them, I assume, right? Well, two or three. Were you always a Buddhist? 
I'm born in Valley Station, Kentucky. Very few white people from Valley Station, Kentucky are part of this. <laughs> I guess I should say how long or what was the, what was the switch for you? How were you raised from a faith perspective? Well, I was raised as a Southern Baptist yeah. you know, in Valley Station, Kentucky. So I started studying Buddhism at age 18 or 19. So I probably read 400 books on Buddhism. I know more about Buddhism than organizational behavior and stuff I got a PhD in. It seems like they may be a little related. They're very related. In my <laughs> mind, are, well, what I do, what I do is very Buddhist stuff. Right. So my new book uh, is a, it's basically a Buddhist philosophy book. This is, and you did a documentary on this too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So again, I, I, more practically, uh, you know, out of the book, I know you talk about this, but how, what are the steps that people can take to turn their focus away from the destination and to actually enjoying the journey, since that seems to be the core of the challenge? Well, I'll give you one very simple technique. I, I have people do something called daily questions. Yep. Part of these are related to achievement. Part of them are related to meaning and part of them are related to happiness. So the questions are, number one, today, did I set clear goals? Two, did I make progress for achieving my goals? Three, did I do my best to be happy? Did I do my best to find meaning? Did I do my best to build positive relationships? And did I do my best to be fully engaged? Every day, just answer these six questions. Did I do my best too? Let's just take one of them. Did I do my best to be happy? Now, three people I've coached, and I, this is in my book, Triggers, are medical doctors. They're among the smartest people I ever met. Dr. Jim Kim. You know, Dr. Jim Kim is a simultaneous MD and PhD with honors from Harvard in anthropology in five years. Normal person, it takes eight years to get a PhD in anthropology in Harvard. He got one in five years and got a medical degree at the same time. He went on to be president of Dartmouth, head of the World Bank. Uh, Dr. Ross Shaw, head of the USAID, reported Hillary Clinton at age 37. Now he's head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And Dr. John Noseworthy, the head of the Mayo Clinic. Three of the smartest people I ever met. All three ask a question. On an average day, one to 10. How would you score in this question? Did I do my best to be happy today? All three had the same answer. Never dawned on me to be happy. Never thought about it. Never dawned on me to try to be happy. Now, I ask them, they're all medical doctors. Did it dawn on you you're going to die? Did they cover that in medical school? Death. Did they bring that topic up? Death. And, oh, yeah, death. And medical school, they covered death. I said, do you think this is a silly question? I said, no. It's an important question. I just forgot to ask. I was too busy achieving things. Is it not until that moment that people, when, when does the achievement regret kick in? Is it? I never thought of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the concept never crossed their mind. The yeah. average human being, now the question, did I do my best to be happy today is 5.5 out of 10. And some of these people say, if you went to school and you got a 55 out of 100, were you proud of the right. test? I'd be ashamed. Well, I say, what's more important, a stupid test in school or a test I just gave you? It's about a thousand times more important than the test you took in school and you just flunked it. Well, the questions are interesting. Can you talk about, because I, I know you talk a lot about this stuff is hard and, and habit and routine is hard. You are a super disciplined person. You've been doing this for how many years? Don't you pay someone to call you and ask you these questions every day? I either pay someone or have someone <laughs> call me every day. Why? Yeah. You, you raised a great point. Somebody yeah. asked me, why do, you, why do you have someone call you every day? Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory. That's why <laughs> I have someone call me every day. My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I got ranked number one executive coach and leadership thinker in the whole world. I have someone call me every day just to make sure I do these simple things I teach. Why? My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do any of this stuff by myself. I need help. And it's okay. I need help. It's okay. We all need help. What's, what, what is your average uh, response to the happiness question? 
That one, 9.5. Every day. So you, those are the same questions you ask, you have someone ask you every day. I, I don't get a 9.5 on everything. I get a high score on that one, though. I, I, by the way, I one, one question I get a 10 on every day, just one of my own personal questions. That is, did you declare victory in life? You know what my score is every day? 10. Every day I woke up, you know what I say? You won. You, I'm declaring victory every day. Look, as many blessings as I have, if I can't be thankful for what I have, shame on me. Do you have a specific morning routine that you start the day with? Not always. Not always. I try to do my daily questions in the morning, and I try to set my goals for a day in the morning. Setting goals for the day, what does that look like? Is it is it like a three things, or is it what's the cadence on it? I'll get out my calendar and actually look at the day and try to plan it as best I can. Now, again, very seldom does the actual day follow the plan. In my book, Triggers, I also talk about this, the high probability of low probability events. So when we plan our day, we don't plan on anything going wrong. Yeah. We, we plan our day as if somehow nothing is going to go wrong today. Well, the thing is, you don't plan on the car breaking down or you hurt your foot or your aunt died. You say, well, that's what are the odds? There are a million low probability events that can occur. And while the odds on any one of them are very small, the odds on something happening, pretty much every day something happens. And we say, gee, well, who would have guessed? Well, of course, who would have guessed this would have happened? But the odds on something happening, hey, right. they're pretty good. How yeah. many days do you go through life where nothing happens, you have no distractions, everything works out as planned? Almost never. I actually think that's the problem with society today. And I think some of COVID looking at it, whereas I don't know what the, you know, I guess the Buddhist philosophy on this would be about how you react to it. But I think there's an expectation that everything is going to go right. And that has been now a parental philosophy, you know, for decades where, where when it goes wrong, poor you, because there was some expectation that it should go right. And I think that that's very <laughs> inaccurate to how life has gone on for hundreds or thousands of years, right? Well, again, that's like I say, the high probability of low probability events. I mean, Buddha, what did Buddha say? He was brought up very rich and he was protected from life. His father was a king. He lived in a bubble. He was able to sneak out three times. What did he learn? You get old, number one. Number two, you get sick. And number three, you die. You had all the money in the world and all the status and fame. You get old, you get sick, and you die. He thought, well, this more, 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 more stuff isn't working for me. He went out in the woods and tried to get less, less, less. Starved himself, all that stuff. You know what he learned? That didn't work either. But he finally realized, you can't be happy with more. You can't be happy with less. It's only one thing in life you can ever be happy with. What you have is only one time. Now, there's only one place here. That's it. Where's Nirvana? For all of you listening right now, it's listening to two old guys talk about life. This is it. <laughs> this is heaven. This is hell. This is the whole show. This show right now. This is it. This is this is everything. Right. This uh, this uh, little Zoom call. This is it. Well, I think that's an interesting. And again, assuming that is very woven into your leadership coaching around what can a leader deal with? They can deal with themselves internally mostly right and and what what they're doing now and what's going on now not the past not the future right yeah i i found i'm pretty incapable of changing the past <laughs> but but is there a balance between i mean you want to learn from the past right but not get stuck in the past i guess right yeah yeah well i give people feedback the feedback is confidential so they do get feedback about the past after that everything is feed forward they don't dwell on that. It's like, okay, fine. Here's what I was. How do I get better? 
And I assume that when people are then giving them that, what you could do better, it also helps to orient in the future because it's less, you know, it's, it's more positive about what they can do and not about what, what, what they have done. Oh, sometimes, even if it's about what they have done, I focus on what can they do now. I mean, feedback is useful to know where you've been. Yeah. Forward is useful to know where you're going. How do you not get stuck? So then the flip side, how do you not stuck too much in the future? I, I haven't really found that to be a problem. For you, for, or I'm in, in in coaching. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't found that to be a problem. Now you have to realize I do not work with a random sample of human beings. And to be fair, my book is not bought by a random sample of human beings. My books, I've done studies. Who buys the books? They're ninety five percent college graduates. Two thirds have graduate degrees. They're mostly managers, professionals, or you know, pretty gung ho people. Why would they buy this book in the first place? If they don't care, why would they buy it? Why would they read it? So, you know, my stuff is not intended for a mass audience. Why? I don't deal with a mass audience. It's good to know your audience. Yeah, there's a, uh, I think it's Kevin Kelly and a thousand, 10,000 raving fans, right? It's more, everyone's out there looking for the mass followers and social media versus the, who, who are the people that care the most and actually really, yeah. you know, benefit the most from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've, I've sold two or three million books, so it's not like I haven't sold any books. But that's still a very small percentage of the population of people who live. To, to the person who calls you every day, I mean, there's different ways that people can, I mean, that's one way. How, how do you encourage people to have, because this stuff is hard, what are the different ways you encourage people to embrace accountability? Is it is it peer? Is it getting someone outside? Is it keeping a journal? Like what? Well, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I, yeah. think, I think willpower is grossly overrated. Yeah. And easily consumed. <laughs> yeah, willpower. Uh, you know, every, you know, how many people have stuff they haven't done for twenty years? They're going to tell themselves they're going to do it next week, right? Well, you haven't done it for twenty years. You really think next year's next week's going to be different? You're not going to do it next week. You're just kidding yourself. It's hard. I think it's very healthy. One thing I'm very proud of in my book, another one of my books, twenty-seven major CEOs endorsed the book. Now, why am I proud of that? Thirty years ago, no CEO would admit to having a coach. Yeah. It would have been a shame to have a coach. Embarrassed. They wouldn't tell anyone they had a coach. Well, today, you look at my books now. Who are these people? These are the most successful people in the world. They stand up and say, I need help. They're not too proud to ask for help. How many top 10 tennis players have a coach? 10. Why? Is it because they're losers? No, they're winners. In fact, they probably have multiple. They probably have a swing coach and a conditioning coach and a fitness coach. Yeah. Yeah, well, Twyla Tharps, the world's greatest choreographer, she's had the same personal trainer for 27 years. The trainer doesn't teach her anything new. The trainer just makes her do what she knows she's supposed to do. That's why she still looks good. She's smart enough to know she's not going to do it on her own. It's hard. If you don't have somebody kick your butt, you won't do it. Well, last question for you, Marshall. What's a, I would say this could be, it's multivariant. It can be single, it can be personal or professional or single or repeated. But what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made in your life or career that you learned the most from? Ego. Ego, just, um, you know, ego, reading my own press, uh, believing that I'm somehow, you know, I mean, look, how much recognition have I gotten? Way more than I ever deserve. Chester Elton's a good friend of mine. He has a study, does he? Gets in his group, says, how many people have been over-recognized in your life? He's done it to a thousand people. You know how many people ever raised their hand out of a thousand? One, me. I've been grossly overrecognized in life. I'm not naive. 
you think I really believe I'm the best coach in the whole world? Nobody knows. Who the hell knows? I don't know that. Or I've sold all these books. Half the books on Amazon in a year sell zero to one copies. Am I so arrogant? I really believe my books are better than them. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But occasionally I've lapsed into actually believing this nonsense. And that's kind of when I go down a bad path. <laughs> Getting great recognition is good. Believing it is bad. <laughs> That's an interesting quote. So it's good to get it as long as you're not you're not drinking your own Kool-Aid. Yeah. Well, Marshall, where can people find more about you, your work, and more importantly, the the new book? Well, the new book, since they gave me a million dollar advance on the book, I think it's going to be pretty available out there. So <laughs> hopefully it's going to be in most bookstores and Amazon, of course, and all the normal characters. Uh, also, my website, www.marshallgoldsmith.com. Now, here's an important point I didn't make. I give everything away. So all my material, you may copy, share, download, duplicate, modify, put your name on it, change it, use it however you want to. If you like parts of it, use that. You don't like the rest, change it. It doesn't matter. I give it all away anyway. So go to my website, go to YouTube, look me up. All my Any of my stuff that you can use to help anybody, just knock yourself out. So I give everything away. And then I'll send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com is my email address. All right, Marshall, always great to talk to you. Thank you for uh, joining us and sharing your wisdom and uh, looking forward to the uh, big book launch today. Thank you so much. All right. You can learn more about Marshall and the Earned Life. Uh, and we'll also include links to uh, resources and some of the pages that he talked about on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.